0: There we go. I was saying that um, uh, this past Saturday night and Sunday, we celebrated Simchat Torah, which marks the end of the reading of the five books of Moses through the course of the year. And now on this coming Shabbat, this we begin again this week within the beginning. Um, and the first Torah portion, which is, Breishit in the beginning, the first five chapters, roughly of Genesis. <clears throat> if you're unfamiliar with this cycle, um, the weekly Torah readings don't follow the chapters and verses, which are many more many more chapters than there are weekly Torah portions. Because uh, our task in the Jewish tradition is to to divide up the portions into weekly section such that in the course of the year, we will make our way through the entire five books of Moses. So each, each week's portion is more than one chapter, otherwise we'd never get there. And, uh, and we're starting in the beginning. And so to start in the beginning, <clears throat> I decided it would be a nice time to refresh ourselves on what, what it means to study Torah uh, again. It never gets, I don't think we can do this too much. And I've got some materials I want to share with you that are about, I'd say, three hours worth of materials. So what are you going to do? Um, I'll get started. And I'm sure we'll end in a place that that is um, useful and clarifying. We're not going to get beyond the first verse of the Torah. B'reshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim et in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're not we might get partway through that verse today, because my purpose in starting over again is to remind us of the, um, that the Jewish practice of Torah study is a practice of intensive, creative, and multiple readings of the very same words in many, many ways. And so I think I wanna start with a a document that I created with different sources called on how to read Torah that Gwen is going to share with you. And then perhaps we can also share it uh, so you can have it, Um, but we haven't set that up. Okay. Gwen, are you able to make that any larger? Sorry, I had it nice in um, full screen mode. Yes, I can make it larger if I don't share it in screen in full screen mode. Okay, thank you. Beautiful, thank you. Okay, so I've set these up chronologically so that you can get an idea of how ancient this tradition, this way of Jewish reading is. Um, That we do not read the Torah as a flat text as something that has only one meaning. That is absolutely antithetical to our understanding, to our approach as Jews, to how we study this text. And um, the reason I want to, one of the reasons I want to share with you is today is not only that we're at the beginning of the Torah again, but that the very idea that we would take the line, this seven words in Hebrew, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." and assume that that's the end of the story. Oh, when the Torah is actually a, um, a spiritual um, literature. So if it's talking about in language, the beginning of everything, then it's got to invite our, um, imaginative selves into it, right? If we read it as a textbook um, or a cookbook, we're, we're failing ourselves utterly because the Torah is neither. The Torah is a book of spiritual wisdom. Okay, so back in the second century, it was already well understood. In Rabbi Ishmael's school, it was taught is not my word like a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces?" Quoting Jeremiah. And then Rabbi Ishmael says, as the hammer splits the rock into many splinters, so will a scriptural verse yield many meanings. Uh, Sounds kind of postmodern which if I was saying it, you would say, oh yeah, well that's, that's sort of the way to read the text these days. But no, we've always been reading the text this way. In the third century, Ben Bagbag would say, turn it and turn it for everything is in it. Reflect on it and grow, grow old and gray in it and do not turn away from it for there is no better way than this. That's how he describes how approached the Torah. Uh, Shameless self-promotion. That's why I titled my recent book, uh, Turn It and Turn It, Essays on the Weekly Torah Portion. Ah, thank you, Deborah. That's why I chose that title. And that's also one of the thrusts of the book is uh, offering it in all those different ways. Here's another one. This is from um, probably the seventh century. Once as Ben Azai, a famous rabbi, was expounding the scriptures, flames blazed up around him. And being asked whether he was a student of the mysteries of the chariot of God, he replied, I string together like pearls, the words of the Torah with those of the prophets. And those of the prophets with those of the writings. And therefore the words of the Torah rejoice as on the day when they were revealed in the flames of Sinai. Okay, so this is a mystical story about Ben-Azai reflecting on the Torah, the wisdom of the Torah, making connections between all the different books of the Torah and flames springing up around him like it's the original revelation, right? Because in Jewish understanding, the original revelation is not a moment fixed in time. The original revelation is recreated whenever we are, any individual or any of us are experiencing the illumination of, um, of, 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 of Torah study, of the spiritual um, illumination of Torah study. We are standing at Mount Sinai at that point because we are receiving the wordless words of God that, that come into us in a, in, a, in a way that's not the written page. I like these. Um, I want to read you the next one. This is from a Midrash collection in the 10th century. A Midrash, so this is a parable that we don't know who the author was. A king of flesh and blood had two servants whom he loved completely. The king is always God in these stories. He gave each of them a measure of wheat and a bundle of flax. The intelligent one, what did he do? Well, he wove the flax into a cloth and made flour from the wheat, sifted it, ground it, kneaded it, and baked it, arranged it on the table, spread upon it the cloth, and left it until the king returned. The stupid one did not do anything. After a time, the king returned to his house and said to them, My sons, bring me what I gave you. One brought out the table set with the bread and the cloth spread upon it and the other brought the wheat in a basket and the bundle of flax with it. Oh, what an embarrassment, what a disgrace. Which do you think was most beloved? The one who brought the table with the bread upon it. Similarly, when God gave the Torah to Israel, God gave it as wheat from which to make flour and flax from which to make clothing through the rules of interpretation. I love that story. The Torah does not exist separate from our engagement with it. It's our job, our holy task, not to obey it blindly, but to make it into, make the raw materials into something even better that we can serve back to God. It's a, it's a cycle. It's a, it's a relationship. I love that story. Okay, uh, now, yeah, I'm glad you like it, Rebecca. I think, I think it's just beautiful. And again, I share it with you because we're not being radical by diving into the layers and layers. We are being Jewish. And it's, a, it's one of the reasons why I enjoy this particular um, Jewish activity so much of Torah study. Okay, this next one comes from the Zohar and it's from a passage in the introduction to the Zohar. So what's the Zohar? The Zohar is the kind of, is the um, most um, most widely studied, read um, Jewish mystical interpretation of the Torah. And it, was created in spain in the 13th century and uh so there's a section the first section of the zohar is its introduction and in its introduction the hero rabbi shimon and by the way the zohar is not a textbook it is almost like a um uh um what's the right language i'm looking for it's It's almost a um, hallucinatory isn't the right word I'm looking for, but phantasmagorical, utterly free, poetically and imaginatively, ready to, ready, unconcerned about one metaphor uh, that might contradict a metaphor used elsewhere in a different way. It's just, it's not something you can study in a a, uh, systematic way. You enter into it and you unpack each text for its own value. And they comprise a kind of conceptual whole, but not a, um, not a systematic piece of literature by any means. Um, So Rabbi Shimon, who is the, um, the central figure of the Zohar, um, though he, the Rabbi Shimon who, who we're talking about here lived a thousand years earlier, but the author, uses him as his protagonist, said, come and see, there is a garment visible to all. When fools see someone in a good looking garment, they look no further. But the essence of the garment is the body and the essence of the body is the soul. There we'll scroll down, thank you. So it is with Torah. She has a body, the commandments of the Torah, called the embodiment of Torah. And the body is clothed in garments, which are the stories of the Torah. Fools of this world look only at that garment, the story. They know nothing more. They do not look at what is under that garment, those who know more do not, they do not look at what is under that garment. Those who know more do not look at the garment, but rather at the body under the garment. And the wise ones, servants of the King on high, those who stood at Mount Sinai, they look only at the soul, the root of all, the real Torah. So Rabbi Shimon's metaphor is how we approach someone that we meet. Do we look at their uniform and decide who they are based on what uniform they wear? What, you know, this person's a bum, this person's a a general, this person's a doctor, and that's it, okay, we got it, we figured it out. We know how they stand socially, we know how we should treat them. Do we perhaps look further and look at their actual body underneath their garment and encounter a person but still there's another level to look. Do we look within them and try to discern their soul, their essence? So it is with the wise ones who look at the root of Torah, the soul of Torah, not the written document alone, nor even the holy moral instructions, but something even deeper. And Rabbi Shimon continues, Woe to those who say the Torah is merely a story. They look at the garment and go no further. Happy are the righteous who look at Torah properly. As wine must sit in a jar, so Torah must sit in this garment. So look only at what is under the garment. All those words and all those stories are just garments for deeper truth. Michael Fishbane, who's a theologist um, uh, who wrote this in 2010, um, I'm not going to read the whole paragraph because he's using big academic words. Uh, We don't have to plow through them. But if you come to the last four lines where it says textual study, textual study thus becomes a discipline of ethical and spiritual self-cultivation. And scripture is transformed thereby from an authoritative corpus of received laws, beliefs, and memories, memories into an authorizing matrix for ongoing meditative reflection and reflective action. I loved that sentence. It instead of an authoritative corpus, Torah becomes an authorizing matrix for ongoing meditative reflection and reflective action. I wanted to share that with you. That wait, there's one more, Gwen, unless I forgot it to put it on the document. Ah, it's not there. I'll read it to you, everybody. This is by Rabbi Laura Dewan Kaplan, who's a wonderful rabbi in Vancouver. Uh, I don't know if she's still in Vancouver. She's commenting on a sentence of Torah, a verse. It's a simple, clear sentence, but in Torah, Hebrew, in Torah Hebrew, nothing is simple. Tradition regards the words of Torah as the speech of God and God's speech as the most multi-layered, meaning-laden speech possible. How else could it be? Anything but. To understand even one sentence, we have to look at it from at least 70 different perspectives. And again, that 70 is um, a uh, symbolic number in Judaism for all the languages of the earth. Okay. So if anyone has any comments they wanna type in the chat or questions, cause I just shared with you a whole mess of beautiful phrases. I really uh, welcome, you know, welcome you to share anything you want in the chat before I, but that prepares me to move on to a text to study with you that'll be really like that. Like, what is this? Ah, good. Okay, good, then I think that's coming across pretty clearly, but I'll uh, give you another second if you want to write anything down. Okay, good stuff. Now, so I want to think about the very first verse in the Torah and the very first even word of the Torah. I'm gonna ask Gwen to put up um, the other document that, uh, thank you. Great. The Hebrew you see at the top. Oh. The Hebrew you see at the top is the first verse of the Torah. And I didn't translate it on purpose. Breshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve haaretz. Well, in in the King James in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right. And if you open up 20 different translations into English of this verse, you'll come up with 20 different variants possible translations. Just in terms of trying to get the plain meaning of the text across. Uh, One of the reasons is that this verse is not grammatical in Hebrew. Um, Bereshit means in the beginning of. That's what bereshit means. In the beginning of, God created the heavens and the earth. That would be maybe what it means in English. Uh, Some people have tried to solve that by saying bara doesn't mean God created, but in the beginning of God's creating of heavens and earth. This verse is really, really problematic to try to make into a grammatical English sentence. Okay, having said that, what our, if we're going to take those instructions that I was reading from across the century seriously, then we have to look within. The text, as I said at the beginning, um, what's happening here? Uh, We're describing the beginning of everything. The beginning of everything. Something that none of us can actually inhabit. We might be able to intuit it with what part of our being? Do we approach the, the, how do we, how do we get there? Is that this isn't something that we can, this, is, this has to be a creation myth. It can't be a creation um, a, um, uh, uh, thesis because even the big bang theory, which now gets talked about as though it happened this way, when you, penet- when you try to penetrate it, is a story of utter impossibility and mystery itself. A point in which all of creation is contained out of what? what? Okay. So, um, So with that in mind, the Zohar, I want to go on an excursion with you. This excursion is going to be for those who haven't experienced the Zohar before, really I'm almost you just have to go for the ride. The Zohar is imagining this first moment. And this is in this is the opening sentences of the Zohar's riff on this word in the beginning. I'm going to read it to you so you can hear it as poetry, and then I'll unpack it for you a little bit, okay? So don't try, don't don't try hard, just listen. When the king conceived ordaining, he engraved engravings in the luster on high. A spark of impenetrable darkness flashed within the concealed of the concealed, from the mystery of the infinite, infinite, a cluster of vapor in formlessness set in a ring, not white, not black, not red, not green, no color at all. As a chord surveyed, it yielded radiant colors deep within the spark, gushed a flow imbuing colors below. Concealed within the concealed of the mystery of the infinite. The flow broke through and did not break through its aura. It was not known at all. Until under the impact of breaking through, one high and hidden point shone. And beyond that point, nothing is known. And so it is called the beginning, the first command of all. So my friends, I just want you to know, if you tried to pick up the Zohar and read it, this is what it's like. It's um, uh, the, um, There has come out over the last 15 years, a um, new translation of the Zohar, annotated, if you can see here, here's the line from the Zohar uh, there, and here are all of Danny Matt, the wonderful translator and scholar who put it together all of his notes. The only way I can understand these verses is by studying his notes because the Zohar is based on a, a kind of mm, system, a mystical map that has a symbolic, um, uh, that has, that is following a symbolic map of how you get from nothing to something. How you get from before creation to creation. Uh, Psychedelic is a good word. I'll keep reading and then I'm gonna share, share more about it with you. The passage isn't that much longer. The enlightened will shine like the Zohar, the radiance of the sky. And those who make the masses righteous will shine like the stars forever and ever. That's where the book gets its title from this quote from Daniel. Zohar, radiance, concealed of the concealed, struck its aura. The aura touched and did not touch this point. And then the beginning emanated and made itself a palace worthy of glory and praise. There it sowed the seed of holiness to give birth for the benefit of the universe. And the secret is her stock is a holy seed. Don't worry about that at all right now. One more page. Zohar, radiance, sowing a seed for its glory like the seed of fine purple silk. The silkworm wraps itself within and makes itself a palace. This palace is its praise and a benefit to all. And so with this beginning, the concealed one who is not known created the palace. The palace is called Elohim. The secret is with beginning, then utterly nameless created Elohim. Okay. Now in future weeks of this class, we're going to be as we have been in previous weeks, looking at the moral, um, ethical, societal, uh, um, 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 demands of the Torah we'll be explicating them, we'll be seeing how this ancient document of moral teaching translates into what we need to be doing as good Jews and good people today, right? We've been doing a lot of that during this very demanding time that we're in that requires us really to be as clear about our moral and ethical requirements as we can be. And I've been doing that. But when I opened the book to in the beginning, I thought, wait, there's this whole other universe of discourse that coexists in Jewish tradition and in Sufi tradition and in uh, Hindu tradition. And in, it coexists with the ethical imperatives of being a good person made in the image of God, right? That's a different level that we get to at the very end of this first chapter of Genesis. But underneath it, there's. I just want you to be aware, and it, and maybe we'll maybe we'll shift over in this direction uh, sometime before too long, uh, and and have fun exploring this realm of the um, uh, the the speculation about what is the nature of consciousness, how do we become aware, where does this our where does our awareness stem from. What a, what a glorious mystery we're embedded in. And the, and, and the, the Torah then becomes um, as, as a, 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 a doorway through, through Jewish mystical speculation into these questions of human existence. And that's where I'm focused just for a little while today, just to, ah, just so we don't get fixed on either the garment or the body but that we remember that there's a soul inside each of us that is larger and more magnificent and on a greater journey and quest than any current event could encompass. Even while here in the land of ac- action, we have, act- we have things we've got to do. So, um, Let's put up the um, graphic of the Tree of Life. The Jewish mystics, Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, envisions a tree. And this this is its most common depiction that's called the Etz Chayim, the tree of life, that tries to describe how ineffable, unseeable, unknowable qualities of energy that abide in the universe manifest themselves here in our physical realm. How does the sense of ineffable ineffable, infinite creation becomes something that we as finite beings feel that we're connected to? In other words, spiritual awareness. How is that? So again, this, this map, as it were, this graphic is just a way of trying to show that and it's filled with symbolism. Even the tree of life, as it's called, is described by mystics frequently as a tree that has its roots in heaven, not in the earth. And so even though the top of the tree is on the top as we see it here, it's not the top in terms of um, linear reality. It's a whole different way of trying to understand it as a source. You will sometimes see the tree of life depicted as um, uh, 10 circles each nested one within the other, for example, with the infinite being the center point. So again, we're we're in the we don't want to get stuck on those um, uh, uh, on the physical. We want to look beyond the garment and beyond the body into our imaginative and imaginal world. So I'm gonna look at this and point things out to you while I read what I just read from the Zohar, which is trying to describe this process. Bereshit, in the beginning, when the king conceived ordaining and engraved engravings in the luster on high, a spark of impenetrable darkness flashed within to the concealed of the concealed and from the mystery of the infinite, Uh, this spark gushed forth. That's what we were reading. This realm at the top called Keter, which means crown, also is not a closed system. Emerging, Keter emerges from something of name of God called Ein Sof. Ein Sof, which is one of the names of God, literally means infinite without end and we are not capable of communing or we're not capable of comprehending that which is infinite comprehending we may be able to commune with it but we can't comprehend it it's our minds are not designed to be able to take something infinite and do what define it make it into something that we can conceive of. So this is the aspect of God that is beyond conception, inconceivable. And so all the language that the Zohar uses, um, all, the Zohar, all the language that the Zohar uses of, um, it's a, um, for example, a spark of impenetrable, impenetrable darkness. What does that mean? Is it light or is it dark? And it turns out that many mystical traditions use the same kind of metaphor to try to describe this initial big bang, right? This thing that's not a thing, this, this light that's not a light, this beyond our concept. And the way that uh, the Kabbalah, that Jewish mysticism understands how this first moment of creation could happen is that if you see, oh, I see this came up backwards. Uh, Oh, no, no, there it is, Chochmah on the upper right. Chochmah means wisdom. And wisdom receives from the infinite, this flash, this spark, this seed. And within that seed is the potential of all creation. And Chokhmah is understood to be also um, a, a phallic principle in Jewish mysticism. Because Chokhmah then inseminates Bina with this flash, with this seed. And Bina, who is known as the mother, gestates the seed into what will become the creation that we, can experience so there's this there's this fantastic imagination of of um, kind of of of, of uh, the infinite inseminating our universe with potential that is going to manifest in the physical that we live within in in this creation all the way down at the bottom where it says malchut, through a complex process of putting on garments of that ineffable, indescribable light, um, uh, um, dressing up in the world, bit by bit. Um, No, Chochma's masculine, uh, uh, Ellen, and the right and the left, it gets confusing. Um, I don't have the answers to that one. It was a private message from Ellen about uh, uh, the divine feminine, the divine masculine. And honestly, I haven't quite mastered this yet, but I know that consistently, Chochmah is the masculine principle and Bina is the feminine mother principle in the tree. Um, okay, so, so This is how the unknowable Einsof Infinite um, somehow inseminates creation in a way that will give birth to the universe as we know it. And um, here's how, and I'll take a little ride with me because here's how. Rabbi, I think Ellen wants to say something. Oh, please do. Um, just a quick that Chokmah is generally the masculine and Bina receives that spark and becomes the womb of all creation. And for everything. And there is also the idea of chokmah bina da'at as the three supernal mothers. So that's like Chabad, yes. as the three supernal mothers, but mostly it's chokmah, the masculine, just like chesed and netzah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't want to get ahead of anything, but just. Thank you, Ellen. Throw that so, in. Thank you. So what Ellen's pointing out is what I was trying to say before, which is that there's no single reading of all of this. If we do our, if we try to make it into a system that we can replicate, that's not how Jewish mysticism works nor how the Zohar is composed. In this piece of the Zohar, as it's describing the beginning, Chokhmah's masculine and Bina feminine. It, 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 it'll change in different, in different uh, poetic sections. Um, and we don't we don't want to we don't want to think oh now I understand Kabbalah because you can't understand Kabbalah you can sort of just enjoy it and roll with it. Um, okay, so B-Reshit, in the beginning, the Zohar says that you have to understand that Chochma has another name, Reshit, beginning. Because it says in the Psalms, Reshit Chochmah, Yerat Adonai, the beginning of wisdom is reverence for God. And so in Jewish wordplay, Reshit and Chochmah are next to each other in the psalm, and therefore another name for Chochmah. Can be reshit if you're playing with words, which is what we do. Which means that be Rashit means with chokhmah bara Elohim. God with chokhmah blank created Elohim. And here we need to know that one of the other names of Bina is Elohim. So the, so now let's, um, Gwen, if you could take this down and put up the Bereshit um, verse again. Thank you. There's the Hebrew, Bereshit bara Elohim, usually translated as in the beginning, God created. But because it's Hebrew, and the subject and the object get reversed from English. In the beginning, create it. it, it you can read it in the beginning, created God. But you can also read b, which means in, but also means with. Because pronouns in Hebrew, not pronouns, um, prepositions. Yeah, prepositions in Hebrew uh, have multiple meanings uh, depending on context. So bereshit bara Elohim could mean with beginning created God. Okay, now go down to the bottom of the reading, uh, Gwen, please. Thanks so much. With beginning blank created Elohim. So in this re- in wild reading of the first verse of Genesis. It's saying that the infinite nameless one—that's that blank space there—beyond conceiving, that blank I put in there, that I didn't put it in there, that uh, Danny Matt put in his translation, using Chokhmah, which is called beginning, by cement in, in, by giving it that that unknowable spark of light. Chokhmah then created Bina who's known as Elohim. So we are now, you don't have to like this or even follow it that well, uh, but this is how, how um, esoteric and but meaningful this gets because we are now seeing that the word Bereshit, if you go back up to the top, Gwen, thank you so much. The word Bereshit, which we just think means in the beginning. Well, it doesn't mean in the beginning because it means in the beginning of or with beginning or what the heck is that word? With beginning, the infinite unknowable Ensof. With the uh, um, Reshit, which is also known as wisdom, created Bina, which is conceptualization um, and I say conceptualization in the terms of how a mother conceives a child right that's where that's how that word works um, and the and our creation is going to be born of that utterly nameless one making a means for creation to be birthed uh, Let's see, I wanna see what uh, Barb said. I don't know if Otiva said this, but to shape the moral imagination of a child is to create a new world. Wow, what a great quote. If you teach a child about creation, it's as if you have created the world. Thank you, Barb. I love how that links up this utterly poetic, strange thing that I'm sharing with you with what it's meant to link us up to is the mystery of creation and that a being then emerges. Um, So that we don't read that line ever as, oh, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Well, okay, good. Let's see what chapter two says. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's supposed to evoke our utter wonderment, bewilderment, Curiosity, the first line of Torah. Now, um, uh, uh, Gwen, would you put up that line one more time? Now, I'm going to share with you another related. uh, Oh, good. Paul said something beautiful. What makes the chokhmah spark? occur in the first place. Why is Ein Sof doing this? Why is it happening? And the Jewish understanding is desire. The infinite consciousness wants to create, wants to be known, in other words, the universe is not a neutral petri dish. The universe, this mysterious infinite consciousness, Its essence is to want things to happen, want creatures to become, want to have love be manifest and justice in the universe. For Judaism, the universe is not neutral, impossible. Why would creation come into being then? If the infinite was content as it were, in itself, then why would anything happen? There must be a longing in, and desire inherent in creation itself. And we are its children. And what should children do with their beloved parent who made them? Love them. Love them back and try to become like them and show them why we're worthy and all the things that make a good person a good person. Because we want back, we long back, we love back. I find that that not to be speculative. I find that to be a perfectly, mm, a beautiful description of what makes us tick. And so thank you, Paul. Uh, Infinite consciousness works with is imbued with energy of love. Exactly. The energy of love in this understanding is inherent to the energy of creation. That's correct. Well said. Now I want to share with you one more reading that expands on this, but is not this reading itself, and uh, I don't have the original text. Oh, Rebecca asks, are there other interpretations of wisdom that are not limited to being masculine? Yes. Wisdom is part of a triad in Kabbalah. Wisdom, chokhmah, un- um, understanding, which is Bina, and then Da'at, which is awareness. If you just have wisdom, without understanding, if you just have the masculine insight, I know, here it is, without the time of conceptualizing, gestating, exploring, growing, which is understood as the feminine aspect known as um, uh, Bina, which is understanding, then your wisdom is flawed because it's incomplete. Only, Emerging of both the in of both the uh, in the insight, the directive, the thought merged with the time it takes to contextualize, grow, understand that thought, that concept. Uh, can you give birth to real, genuine awareness? And so, Chokhmah is is masculine as part of what is true. Awareness and, and understanding. I hope that answers the question. Um, Paul said, "Is chokma the male spark that takes form in feminine understanding?" Well, you know, we all these days we have to be cautious about male, feminine, how we use these terms. We're we're under because because our our, our kind have always used the understanding of the act of procreation, the male phallus inserting into the female womb, that becomes the metaphor for a flash of insight and a time of, uh, of true comprehension and understanding. And if all we are is flashing our insight around everybody, that's not how the world works, right? That is, if we're gonna continue, that is seed spilled on the ground for no purpose. So that masculine impulse has to be coupled, has to be coupled, and it has to be coupled with intention and love. So it's the metaphor of procreation, kind of the peak experience of joining that many humans have, that becomes the metaphor for mystic- the mystical understanding of the creation of the universe. I think I'm expressing that clearly and gets us a little bit beyond worrying about mas- male and female. Um, and da'at is the deep knowing. Deep knowing, da'at is also in Jewish mystical terms, doesn't just mean knowing, but in the Bible, as Ellen's pointing out, when Adam knew Eve, that's the word that gets used. It's a deep knowing. And it, in, in later Jewish philosophy and mysticism, da'at is translated best as consciousness or awareness. Okay, so the goal, is to develop awareness and consciousness, deep knowing. Very good, everybody. We're almost out of time and I wanna share one more tidbit with you. Um, Put up the tree of life again, please, uh, Gwen. Great, I'm gonna go over just a few minutes because this is juicy. Um, Another reading of that first verse B'reshit bara Elohim et. Now, the Hebrew word et is just an indicator. It doesn't even have an English translation. In the beginning, God created et haShamayim shamayim et ha In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that et word doesn't even have a translation in English. It's, it's where the verb is going, if that makes sense. Um, and so, what? How do we? If we're going to parse every word of this love letter from the universe that is the Torah, et also is aleph taf, the first letter of the alphabet and the last letter. So put a dash in between the aleph and the taf and read it. In the beginning, God created a to z. And so the et, gains, et gets a meeting that like, oh, never thought of that before, except until you look at the tree of life. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And if you look at this graphic, there are 22 pathways in the tree of life. And each pathway in, in mystical tradition has been assigned a letter. If you took the time to study this graphic, you would see that the the pathways are numbered A Aleph to Tav to the and so you can read this as um, in the beginning God created every pathway from infinite unknowingness into our all the. All the, um, uh, every synapse, every possible connection, everything. Because A to Z means the same thing in Hebrew as it does in English. Except that in Hebrew, the alphabet is the language of creation. So it's even more than just every word you can make. It's everything behind those words. Furthermore, the 10 sfirot, the 10 circles, are the the 10 numerals, right? Because sfirot means numerals. Um, uh, Lispor in Hebrew is to count, mispar is a number. Sefirot is related to numbers. And so, again, because of our love with language and symbolism, the 10 circles and the 22 paths make up every numeric and linguistic possible combination. And those 32, for those who joined me on Simchat Torah, the reason I chose 32 fortune cookies to scatter over the Torah, you had to be there, um, is because they represent the four, the 32 possible combinations here. Oh, oh, not possible, 32 building blocks of the universe. This is like the DNA of creation in Jewish mystical understanding. And, oh, Karen, thank you. Karen Levine, just, there are 32 of us at this meeting. Oh, thank you. 32 are the Hebrew letters Lamed Bet. Lamed Bet spells the word Lev, heart. So, the last letter of the Torah, the last word of the Torah is Yisrael, which is a, ends with a Lamed, and the first word of the Torah is Bereshit, which in the beginning, which begins the letter Bet. When you make the Torah into an endless cycle, which is what we do, the Lamed and the Bet join, and the hidden, the sort of the sort of um, template underneath everything, which is Lev, heart, and thirty-two, this map of creation of how creation comes to be, and the thirty-two of us at this meeting, I should add. Um, Uh, Are all all become manifested. And that kind of layering is what's inherent, again, going back to the very beginning of my talk, in how we're supposed to approach Torah. And Paul said, is there always love with da'at, with consciousness and awareness, the child of uh, of, uh, insight and conceiving and uh, contemplation? And the answer is there has to be, or it's not the kind of knowing, you can think it's knowing, but you're actually, you've made yourself into a God because you think that your knowledge of someone else, your awareness of them, is something you can and should manipulate rather than just inhabit with love. <sighs> so there you go. A word picture, a, an, an, a, uh, a word cloud to invite us into studying Torah together in the way that uh, the Jewish tradition and my my firm conviction intended. Thank you for letting me share all that. It's it's really a joy for me to get to articulate it to your very um, welcoming ears and hearts.